Welcome to Health Raisers. Health Raisers don't just survive, together we thrive. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. Today, my guest is Andromeda Ture. I'm thrilled because a few Sundays ago, I'm driving. It's a beautiful sunny day. And I hear your voice on SiriusXM um, on the Growing Up Jazz show. And there was just something about your vibe and the way you were making everybody kind of feel relaxed. Like I felt like I was there with you. And I have to admit, I pride myself on being a very curious person, a lifelong learner. And as you can see behind me, I have a drum kit. So I consider myself to be also a recovering perfectionist who has decided that that's not the best way to be. And the reason why I bring all this up is to say that jazz has been very intimidating to me. It has felt very much a a musical form of people who are in the know, an intellectual art form. And when I heard you talking about your show and the program, which we'll dive into of Growing Up Jazz and how you developed it, I just wanted to know more. And I wanted to debunk my own myth of this has to be for the educated in the no masses or small select group of people rather who uh, consume jazz. I'm really inspired by you, what you're doing and the growth uh, that you took during the pandemic to step out of the box. Please. Uh, I know I did a lot there, but I'm just so happy to have you here. (laughs) Thank you so much. And I'm glad that you brought up the point of it having this outward appearance of being something that's for the elite. Jazz is actually grown out of African and African-American experience in America. That's how I introduce it in my Growing Up Jazz program. I ask people, what is jazz? And I'll get a multitude of answers. But my interpretation of what jazz is, is it is the oral history of the African experience in America. This is our music and it's not grown out of something super intellectual and intimidating. It's grown out of our cultural traditions, our pain and our liberation. And it has been marketed as such to make a profit because it has grown into being, you know, especially once we got to bebop and it became a lot more cranial. They started marketing it that way. But I feel like where the turn really started to happen Mm -hmm. for jazz, where it stepped away from being fun. If you think back in the 20s and in the 30s, they didn't have DJs. If you went to the club, they had a jazz band. That was fun. You went to go dancing. It was dance music. It was for everybody. You could go to a little dive club in Harlem and they had a jazz band in there, right? Right next door to the chicken shack. Nothing intimidating about that. <laughs> True, you, know what true. I, you know what I'm saying? When it became 
a college course. Mm. And when it started being dissected and they were like, oh, we've got to calculate these rhythms so that we can teach them. And we've got to, you know, mathematically figure it out. It became less about feeling and less about oral history and cultural tradition and more, you know, pragmatic because it's easier to break down to explain and to sell that way. And I think that has created the divide in jazz that gives it this impression where you've got to go to college in order to understand it when nope, you should be able to just feel it. And in my opinion, if jazz is just done right, you feel it. And anyone can feel that anywhere in the world. You don't need any kind of training to feel jazz. If you go back and you listen to the blues, you feel that. Doesn't even matter if you speak English, you feel that. So your background is one of growing up in a jazz family. You have That's right. jazz musicians, parents who are musicians. You've been under the tutelage of incredible people like Dizzy Gillespie, Max Roach, um, Wynton Marsalis. I love your inspirations in your biography too. We have so much in common there. Point I'm trying to get to is... You've lived, you've been immersed in this experience where it was not presented to you in an intimidating fashion. It was life for you, it sounds like. Yeah. Now, my perspective has been one of a very much in the classroom experience of, um, I'm a trained uh, physician, I'm retired, but it was always very much serious and everything has an explanation. Now, I didn't necessarily feel that way about music. I didn't want to, but my uh, immersion in the jazz world or lack thereof, I guess, I shouldn't say immersion. My exposure to jazz has been one of sterility, distance. Um, Like you're saying, it's an educated process. I know people who say, I only listen to jazz. Yeah, and that's real. And that's real. And if you look at what is coming out of a lot of jazz institutions and then being, you know, marketed and sold to people, Mm. it's coming from that line of thought, right? It's become, you know, sort of an elite thing. But where it started... Most, if you study jazz history and you pick up a jazz history book, most of them start around 1920, 1930. I start my program in Africa. Okay. And my program ends around 1920, 1930. Uh. And if you understand how the music developed from Africa to that point, it's about feeling. And that's how I experienced it as a child growing up because you couldn't explain all of these deeply cranial, like you weren't explaining tritone substitutions to a (laughs) three-year-old. But I could sit there and I could listen to Thelonious Monk and I could feel what he was playing. I could sit there at a rehearsal with Dizzy Gillespie and he's playing all over the changes and I might not have been able to dissect. Now I can, now I can say, oh, you know, he's doing this and that and this and that from like a more mathematical perspective because I did study Mm -hmm. at college. Mm -hmm. But try, I want to encourage people that even do have that jazz education to take that hat off and just feel. 
just feel the music. What is what does it make you feel at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's how I was introduced to it. One of the things that drives me crazy, I I'm like you, a very curious person. And when albums come out or I discover old albums, obviously I've listened to a lot of jazz in my life, but I have not listened to every jazz record that's ever made. <laughs> and so every once in a while, I'll come across an, an old album that I was like, oh my gosh, how did I miss this one? And I'll Google it and I'll look it up. And the thing that I hate the most is when reviewers are dissecting these albums from like a mathematical standpoint. And I'm like, you're missing the entire point of the artistry. Nobody is going to the Louvre and looking at the Mona Lisa and saying, well, he used this kind of brush and he used ochre yellow over here. You don't read a review of artworks like that. Not usually. You're like, wow, I saw this painting and it made me feel this. You don't go to a Yayoi Kusama exhibit and have this completely like psychedelic trip with all her crazy polka dots and leave that and go, oh, well, the polka dots were 17 centimeters. And then the one to the left of it was eight centimeters. You just feel it. <laughs> and I want people to experience jazz that way. And I think that's why as a songwriter, I infuse so much of contemporary songwriting styles with jazz because it's very simplified. Hmm. Like most pop songs of today mm-hmm. have not complicated chord structures Mm -hmm. and they have very few chords and it's easy for the layman to musically digest. It is not intimidating. So by fusing that concept with some jazz improvisation and maybe more complicated melodic patterns, I fuse the two so that you can, it sort of forces you to have more of an emotional reaction to my music because you can't dissect it the entire song because it's pretty simple. Like once you've dissected it, it should take you about the first minute and a half of the song and then you can just feel the rest, <laughs> hopefully. So, you know, the other musical form that I can think of that has this sort of educated, um, sterile uh, marketing uh, feel is classical music. You know, so why? Why in because you're a studied musician, why these are these particular art forms removed? And then why is there a difference with, as you mentioned, pop music, where it feels more accessible or like a metal um Bar, you know what I like randomly is EDM, electronic dance music. Mm-hmm. I love it. The mm-hmm. songs have like two chords sometimes, but it's so emotional, the music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of classical music, I think it's the same thing that ruined it. I think it's the mass education of classical music. Go back and look at the original application of classical music. They were playing it at parties. They were dancing to it. I went to recently to go to a classical music concert and they were like, oh, this is a waltz. And they played it. And I was like, they played it at such a slow tempo. And I was like, you can't dance to this. <laughs> if this was, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, I'm like, what? Are, what? Mm, but mm. they had 
played everything so exactly and so precisely. And Mm -hmm. by overanalyzing things and breaking it down, I feel like you've really taken the spirit out of so much music. Mm -hmm. Not that it's not important to understand, you know, the circle of fifths and all these kinds of things. You need to understand the music to a certain point, especially with jazz and classical music, because it is harmonically more complex. However, it is still music. Let us not forget. (laughs) Let us not forget it is an art form. Right. Hmm. And there's still joy in it. And it doesn't there have to be, be the joy. rigid. Yeah. And the yeah. versus the rigid educational approach to it of the professor with the elbow patches sitting with the yeah. scotch. You know, yeah. listening to don't jazz. give me sweater vest music. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that. <laughs> okay. So how do you How did you find the inspiration to start this program during the pandemic and then to, I'm not going to steal your thunder, just can you please tell us about it? So I had actually started growing up jazz a couple of years before, but my performance schedule was so busy that it was just kind of like, oh, I had this in my head, I put it down and it was like, ah, I'll do it like maybe once or twice a year. And then the pandemic hit and there were no gigs anymore. And I had a lot more free time. And then, as we all know, George Floyd happened. The Black Lives Matter movement happened. And I saw my program being able to answer so many questions that people had. And I saw my program being able to facilitate difficult conversations Mm -hmm. that need to be had in our Mm -hmm. country surrounding race right now, but through music, which is in a less intimidating fashion. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And so if you're talking about how jazz developed, well, if this is what the music was in Africa, and this is what the music was when it arrived, and this is how it changed through the African-American experience here in order to get to jazz, then we've got to talk about all those things that happened, but we're listening to music and we're watching video clips and we're doing it from this creative artistic perspective. And like I said, it's about the feeling, right? Mm -hmm. So as you're listening to these old songs and these singers and African music A lot of it's not even in English, so you don't understand what they're saying. And you can feel what they're putting into it emotionally. And it sort of takes you out of your perspective and puts you into theirs, which is so powerful when you're trying to get people to consider enslavement, right? People that have maybe never considered what it was like to be enslaved before. For the first time, you can talk at them and try to describe it to them all you want. But if you play them a song that was written by enslaved people, sung from that perspective with that emotion, they're going to feel it. So I also hear you saying you're taking the shame out of the discussion by putting it in this more um, accessible container of music where we can actually relate. 
and actually yeah. have a deeper conversation and feel safe. Absolutely. And a lot of the DEI work that I do on top of that, you know, I work with schools and with organizations to help them with um, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And especially when I'm working with schools and they're like, how can we update our curriculum? And I'm like, we have to talk about the bad things that happened when it's age appropriate for, you know, various levels of school grades. And I was like, but all white people in American history were not bad. You need to be teaching about abolitionists. There were so many incredible abolitionists. There were so many incredible allies. We don't just need to talk about the people who were enslavers. We need to give the kids options too. And that's another important factor because I can understand that. I can understand when people are like, I don't want my kids to feel bad. But if the only people that they see that look like them and that they're learning about that look like them are like portrayed as these bad people and there's no other option, they're going to feel bad. Hmm. But they have a choice to also, you got to teach them about the bad, but also teach them about the abolitionists so that they can have then the opportunity to imagine themselves and say, well, I would have been on the side of this. And so that they have the choice then whether they're going to feel bad or not. And it's the same thing for African-American kids. When A lot of times people are like, oh, I don't want my kids to feel bad. And I was like, you have to also understand. I felt bad as a kid growing up, as an African-American child, because every book and every movie and every assignment was about straight white people, except for like the few people that you mm-hmm. learn about every year during Black History Month, mm-hmm. and it's always the same. It's Martin Luther King, it's mm-hmm. Harriet Tubman. Like, come on, diversify a little bit. That is all <laughs> that I learned. Yeah. And it also made me feel bad. It made me feel invisible. And so while I don't want your kids to feel bad, I don't want kids that look like me to feel bad either. So we've got to have a gray version of our history Mm -hmm. and not a polarized black or white version of our history. There's this great movie out now that I just watched with my kids on Netflix. It's I think it's called The Sea Monster, but it's about a sea monster. And there's a line in the movie that really stung me in a good way. The little girl in the film says, maybe they can be heroes and still be wrong. So this is, yeah, you're getting into some deep stuff now. This is nuanced thinking. This is the challenging and difficult part about being um, indoctrinated in the educational system and wanting to be right and, and finding a right answer. And then it's complicated by identity because we identify or want to, we have stories where, uh, that tie us to who we are, who we want to be, um, who we don't want to be, and who wants to look at themselves and say, I'm a bad person. 
Um, it's difficult, though, to have those gray area conversations, but that's where the real learning, that's where the real growing comes from. Absolutely. That's where the growing comes from. And again, um, I grew up in the 80s, right? So if you look at, I mean, we did have the Cosby show, but outside of that, most of the portrayals in Af of African-Americans in film and television and in magazines was slim to none. And we were usually like the bad guy or the person who gets, gets killed first in a movie. <laughs> so how yeah. Yeah. Or or it's like a black film which oftentimes were like characterized versions of ourselves. And even today my daughter and I have talked about this recently. Sometimes we feel like the movies that are made by African Americans or who have a predominantly African American uh cast mm -hmm. so heavy. Yeah. So heavy. Like where's the joy? Like do I have to exactly. watch something and feel like Oh, you know, I'm I'm going to live everyone's pain every time I look. Where is the in between? Where's the lightness? It's the same thing with children's literature. I have a three-year-old and trying to find diverse literature for him. And it's very difficult to find stories about Black children that are just stories about <laughs> Black children yeah. and not like, I'm going to be strong when I grow up. My yeah. hair is beautiful. And those stories are important. Don't get me wrong. But can we just have a story about a kid that's like, just like the snowy day is such a great story because it's just a kid who wakes up and there's this been a snowstorm outside and he goes outside and has an adventure. That's relatable to any kid that's ever woken up on a snowy day. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. also from a black perspective, it's like, oh, I can just go and have fun. And to come back to your point earlier about um, Black History Month, then it's usually the same two or three people that until you said that, it, it didn't really necessarily dawn on me earlier, but it, it also made the the discomfort feel like powerlessness too. Because mm -hmm. it's like, well, if I can't be Martin Luther King or I can't right. sit at the back of the bus, then... Then it might as well be a gangbanger. Yeah, yeah then what, <laughs> like, what, what are am the I? options? Yeah. What are, yeah. Exactly. What are the other options for me? What about an everyday person a who makes a difference? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like those stories are starting to be extremely accessible. And you're seeing a lot more of that. I look at what my kids have to watch and I'm like, wow, I wish I'd had this mm -hmm. kind of film or literature or whatever. When I was a kid, I've got... Um, my daughter just finished fifth grade and I looked at the books that she got to read even just during her fifth grade year, she read a book about a boy who was from Honduras, who was like um, brought to this country by his parents illegally when he was very young, but he didn't know, obviously. And it was about his experience from his perspective of what that was like and what mm. they were escaping mm. to come to this country. And it just gave her a whole different perspective on this world. She read a, another book about um, a boy who was a refugee from Africa who ended up getting placed with a family in Montana or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I never got to read books like that mm -hmm. when I was in the fifth grade. You know what I mean? But it's also informed your passion, right? Your experience that void has informed your way of being and how you want to show up in the world mm -hmm. and make programs like 
like the brilliant one that you've made. And I also had the inspiration of my aunt Gail Dixon and my mother Mm. Akua Dixon, Mm. who were both civil rights activists within the realm of music and who taught me outside of school. They're like, that's fine. You can read The Secret Garden. That's fine. Read Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) Now you go read this. (laughs) But mom, I'm already reading. That's fine. You go read this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I hadn't had that perspective, I don't know how I ever would have been able to see my see myself doing things like the things that I'm doing now. And if I hadn't grown up, and I think that was also the power of growing up in the world of jazz, because mm-hmm. I was surrounded by really successful, confident, adored, respected Black musicians for the mm-hmm. most part. Mm-hmm that were traveling the world like rock stars playing music. And so it sort of informed what was accessible to me. And I think that's also why jazz needs to be more accessible for kids that maybe live in a more urbanized area that don't see themselves having opportunities like that. Or kids that are living in a more impoverished area, they don't know about you know, Dizzy Gillespie. (laughs) And they should be able to see, like, you don't have to just be a rapper. There's even musicians now. Look, there's Keon Harold, right? Let them them learn about Maurice Brown. And that's exactly where I was going. Could it be uh, an inspiration for kids to bridge that gap of, well, I don't know anything about Dizzy Gillespie, but I do know rap, but look at what this rapper's doing and look at the, this rapper wouldn't be who he is. Like, take, let's take Kendrick Lamar, for example. Right. We, he wouldn't be doing what he does without jazz. Not only that, he sampled jazz. He sampled Willie Jones III. Yeah. <laughs> He's a jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You know? The Beastie Boys sampled, well, who was it? Freddie Hubbard, I believe it was. Freddie Hubbard was sampled by the Beastie Boys. Hmm. Like there is so much jazz throughout the development of hip hop that has influenced. And that is the way that I I introduce to kids. And I'm like, do you guys like Bruno Mars? And they're all like, yeah, we love Bruno Mars. And I'm like, okay, well, here's his trumpet player, Maurice Brown. He's also a jazz musician. Check out some of his music. Okay, well, where's he coming from? Have you ever heard of Miles Davis? Okay, well, let's check out Miles Davis. Wow, this is really cool. I didn't know about this guy. Well, let me tell you about this guy. And there's this huge, rich history that they can identify with, that they can see themselves in a whole new light. And I think it's important for non-Black children to learn that history too, because it gets you to see African-Americans in a different light. You know, I love Dave Grohl. And yes, he, I was watching a YouTube video recently and he showed, he was talking about the famous drumming in a lot of his Nirvana, in any of the Nirvana tracks, any of, yeah. um, um, Smells Like Teen Spirit specifically. And Love he, it. he played the sample and then they showed him listening to like the Gap Band and and funk and funk and disco music and he said this is what i was listening to and this is how it came out for me that's it, amazing you know like translating to these flams and my mind was blown but it's like 
how do we get? So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think what you're doing is great because you're helping us take that journey through. No, this is not a sterile intellectual thing. This is a conduit to understanding how things are passed down. Mm-hmm. Like even in American uh, African American oral tradition, we're doing this yeah. through music too, passing yeah. messages down, passing culture down, passing history down. Well, that's the African tradition of griots, right? They don't have a written history, and their oral history is sung. They play the kora. And they sing the history of their culture. That's how it's remembered. So being able to share history through music is a part of our heritage. If you come from enslavement and you come from a West African lineage, that's your culture. Whether you know exactly what country you come from or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did my DNA recently and I am overwhelmingly Nigerian, which I thought was awesome. I'm like, I got to go. I got to go check out Nigeria now. I want to (laughs) go. I just did it. And I'm like, that's so cool. I'm like, I'm I actually had predominantly Italian. And and then on the African side, it was it was like all Nigerian. And I had like one percent of some other things in there, too. So that also brings up another point I've been thinking about. Instead of looking at things through a dark, lost perspective, like I watch a lot of Henry Louis Gates' uh, Mm -hmm. show, Finding Your Roots. And I find myself feeling very, very, very frustrated when I'm watching generally the African-American experience. But I find myself feeling some hope, which I am trying to practice these days, hence reaching out to people like you. It doesn't just because we can't necessarily trace our ancestors back 10,000 years like, you know, some of the other people can because it's written and it's you can trace these these actual written documents. Because it wasn't interrupted and displaced. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But we're not lost because we have music, because we have food. Yeah. Because we have matriarchs, because we have patriarchs in our families that passed down stories and their childhood and what it was like um, for them growing up, what it was like. Uh, I'll take a step back. I was very moved back in 2018. This would have been in 20, no, 2016. This would have been when um, I'm a first generation Haitian American and Mm -hmm. my dad took me and my two sisters to Haiti, and we spent a week there. And I got to know my dad on a much deeper level than I would have in any other way. Yeah, yeah. And where I come from. Mm Mm-hmm, you see? On my family's history, it's very interesting because on my father's side, it's very well documented. We can trace our family like back to the 1500s. It's really incredibly well-preserved family history. We know exactly where our family comes from, who we married, which where we lived, where we bought a house, where we sold the house and moved to. Like that family is insanely well-documented. Wow. And then on my mother's side of the family, my grandfather was born a sharecropper and his father was born at the tail end of enslavement. And so 
that's all that's all I know. I don't know my great grandfather's name. I know my grandfather's name and I know my grandfather's story and that's as far back as I can go. Same thing with my grandmother. On my mom's side, that's as far back as I can go in terms of that. But what I can do and what I did decide to do was I got my DNA test because I always culturally was able to, obviously I I grew up in New York City and my dad's family is all in California. So I grew up with my mom's family because my mom's a New York girl. We were all born in the Bronx. And I grew up with my mom's family because that's who was here every holiday, every family gathering. It's my mom's family who's black. And so I grew up with this like Bronx, Black, American culture, which I love, but it has its limitations, right? Because of the history has a block around it because we can only go back to my grandfather. And so when I went, you know, as you're growing up and you're trying to self-identify and you were reaching for a more deeper understanding of self, it was a lot easier for me to identify with my dad's side of the family because there was information there. I could say, oh, well, I could go to Italy because I still have family there and I could stay and I did. And I stayed with my family in Italy and I learned my like grandfather's cousin's risotto recipe in her kitchen. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I could connect. Yeah. And so it gave me a sense of pride and a sense of cultural identity that I've never been able to have on the African-American side because of the interruption of enslavement. But now that I know that I'm on the African-American side, overwhelmingly Nigerian. I started looking up Nigerian recipes, listening to Nigerian music and trying to absorb, learning about the country and absorbing that history and that culture for Mm -hmm. myself so Mm -hmm. that I can have that sense of pride and sense of connection to culture that I have so strongly on the other side of my family. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the things that also... I used to get in trouble a lot because I always identify as being mixed and I would get into arguments if black people would be like, no, you're black. And I'm like, I'm not saying that I'm not Mm. black, but it is a bit uncomfortable for me to say that I'm just black because Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm ignoring half of my family Mm -hmm. and a culture that I'm very connected to. And Mm -hmm. especially when I was younger and I didn't have any like further deeper connection to the black side or know where I was from. And I think being a mixed person and having these cross-cultural experiences growing up also made me a really great conduit for being able to facilitate these difficult conversations because I've had to do so much work myself. And I also have, you know, my dad's side of the family has had a lot of Republicans and a lot of people that were of that kind of thought. And my mom's family was like civil rights activists mm-hmm, and coming mm-hmm. from that side of thought. And these were all my family members and I loved all of them. And I had to learn how to talk to all of them and understand all of them. So it, that difficult childhood <laughs> aspect has really informed the work that I do today. So sometimes your trials and tribulations end up being your trophy. Oh, for sure. I love that. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. And it's it's why you're uniquely positioned to make 
change happen, right? For other people through your art. What I really, another thing I want to say is that when I was reading through your biography, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, okay, okay. She's, she's done it. She's, wow. She's all these accolades and, and all of these accomplishments. And yet you didn't just stop there. You didn't just say, okay, this is where I'm going to stay. This is my comfort zone. I'm, I'm, I'm composing. I am singing. I am, I'm collaborating with other people. You didn't just let it stop there. You said, what else can I do with this platform? And would you say that that's born out of an insatiable curiosity? No, that was, uh, that's actually a really great story. So I was perfectly content to be a singer and to be a composer and to live a life on tour and just sort of have this road warrior lifestyle. And I ended up living in Japan for about two years where I learned about the Japanese concept of ikigai, which translates to mean a reason for being. And that is the combination of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can be paid for. And I was like, oh yeah, that's that's dope. That's how I want to live my life. And I thought about it. I was like, okay, I'm a jazz singer. Do I love it? Oh yeah. Am I good at it? Yeah, I think so. Can I get paid for it? Well, I'm making a living doing it. Does the world need this? And I'm like, the world needs another jazz singer. Like it needs a hole in the head. What am I doing? (laughs) This is not. And then I really thought about it. I'm like, I'm singing jazz standards. At the time, I wasn't doing a whole lot of, of original content. I was doing like 85 to 90% standards. And I was like, I'm never going to sing this better than Ella Fitzgerald or Sarah Vaughn. Like I can sing it well, but I'm like, it's kind of hit its peak. (laughs) And when I started to zoom out and also look at the context of the songs and the social impact of the songs, some of them are still relevant today. Like Strange Fruit is definitely, you know, still relevant today. But like a lot of those American songbook, if you're really diving into the lyrics, it's a bit outdated. It's not relatable. And there's so much happening in the world right now to react to and respond to as an artist. And that's what the world needs. And so I was like, how can I do that? So it shifted how I approached my music. And it also was like, how can I give back all of this incredible knowledge that I was gifted from the growing up jazz experience that I have. And that's what inspired me to create growing up jazz was to try to find this sense of balance within my own existence. I would say though, I would add that it Mm -hmm. was, you were open. You were curious to have that epiphany in Japan and go, oh, there's more. I want more. I may not have been able to articulate that before, but this experience has shown me that there's more for me to do. Absolutely. And I will also say that it was a bit financially motivated (laughs) as well, because I was 24 when this happened. And at 24, I had left college when I was 22. I dropped out to go on tour singing background vocals for Ray Charles. And then he died like 
almost right after I got the job. Yikes. And I had auditioned for that job. I got the job and then I was out of a job. And then mm. I auditioned for this Woody Allen show. I auditioned for a bunch of other stuff in between that I didn't get. And then I auditioned for this Woody Allen off-Broadway show when I got the job and it was only for a limited run. And then I was out of a job. And then I auditioned for this job in Japan. And I was like, do I really want to be beholden to this audition cycle where I'm constantly dependent on other people deciding that I'm the right person for a job to be able to work? Or do I want to take things into my own hand and create my own life where people are coming to me? And I was like, I don't like this gap. <laughs> and I was like, there's too much opportunity to be broke. And I don't want to be broke. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can't do this weeks and weeks with no work thing. It's not happening for me. Gotcha. Yeah. But an insatiable curiosity, I would say yes. I'm forever a learner. I... I've gone back to school even this year to become a certified diversity professional through Cornell University. I'm always learning and growing. And I think it's so important to keep your mind fresh and not stale. Hmm. Agreed. Agreed. 100%. Do you have a story that you can share where you have seen a light? You've you've turned on a light for someone in your uh, DEI work. Oh man, so many. I, I've worked with so many different age groups that I like. I start with. I've not done younger than fifth graders, but I think for the for the younger demographic, I remember there being a boy. And when I modify my growing up jazz program depending on the age of the people that I'm talking to, I'm I don't hit the fifth graders quite as hard as I hit like adults with <laughs> 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 history. <laughs> And I was trying to get the students to really put themselves in the shoes of children that were enslaved. And this one kid was like, well, he kept trying to, well, I would have done this. Well, I would have just done this. Well, I would have just done this. And I played him this one song and I saw his face soften as he listened to it. And after that song ended, and I was like, now what do you think? And he goes, I think it was really hard for them. He finally got it because he's so used to living in a contemporary American world where like if somebody told him he had to do something, well, I would have just gotten one of my friends to do it. Well, I would have just um, run away. Well, I would you know what I mean? Because he's looking at it from a perspective of how his life is now. And he got it and it didn't make him feel sad. It, he didn't seem sad. He was softened to their condition. And from then on, he was able to approach the rest of the learning from a much more compassionate standpoint instead of, yes, an empathetic standpoint, instead of the perspective of, well, they should have just done this or I would have just done this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the power of music when you're feeling the music, (laughs) (laughs) right? Full circle. Music can move mountains. Full circle. Yeah. This has been lovely. Thank, Thank you, you. So Likewise. very, very much for coming to the show. I have um, a couple of questions. Okay. Are you curious about anything that you'd like to ask me? Oh, what made you start this podcast? Hmm. A need for 
a broader discussion about health. I am sick of being a woman in the society and I'm a, a woman, um, I'm 51. Mm-hmm. Um, tired of the your body is a battleground yep. platform. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have, if you don't fit this size dress or if you don't eat this many vegetables, then yeah. you're not a healthy person or these yeah. are the only parameters that define health. Yeah. Um, I'm, my background is also one of, I've, I'm a retired pathologist. So I saw a lot of the, it's not a health and wellness lens. It's a sickness lens. It's let's, mm-hmm. we get this thing and let's fix it. Mm-hmm. And I just felt very uneasy with that approach. And I thought there's more. And I it slowly dawned on me that no, I'm a health advocate and we yeah. need to have a broader conversation, especially as women. Absolutely. And so that's why I started this podcast because I wanted to have these open discussions and think I wanted someone to go, what does curiosity have to do with being a healthy person? Yeah. But you know what? I feel like that's a very feminine perspective on health. I mean, maybe people are going to be mad that that I said that. But I, over the years, for whatever reason, now that I'm thinking about it, every single doctor that I have right now is a woman. And they all have that kind of approach. And I naturally have that kind of approach too. Like, I don't want to fix a problem. I want to stop it from happening. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to fix the root of it. Mm-hmm. And anytime that I've tried to have those kind of conversations with male doctors, they've not, they've been like, what, what do you know? We're going to, we're going to fix the problem. And I'm like, no, but I don't, I don't want the problem to happen. How can we let's rewind. And I have found just from my life experience that female doctors are much more open to that. So I think that's kind of interesting that you took that experience and made a podcast of, of it. I think that's amazing. Thank you. I did just think of another story that was a change of mind. I was working with a group of adults and I did my growing up jazz program. And afterwards, somebody asked me, you know, what inspired me to start doing it on Zoom during the pandemic. And I was like, oh, you know, with the George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. And this one guy got very angry and he was like, oh, everybody's talking about Black Lives Matter. Well, blue lives matter. And I said, you're damn right, blue lives matter. What happens when you kill a police officer? $10,000 cop shot. The whole force is out looking for them to solve the case. The community is rallied up. How dare you shoot a police officer? And what happens when you kill a black person? Okay. (laughs) And he got it. And he shut up for the rest of the the Q&A section. Mm -hmm. And I could see him listening Mm -hmm. from a different place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Shades of gray. They matter. It's It's not just... Yeah. Life is not simple. Of course blue lives matter. Yeah. Yeah. It's not simple. Saying black lives matter doesn't mean that blue lives don't matter. Yeah, it's. Uh, I recently had the two um, comedians or producers of from Second City on the show, mm-hmm. and they said something. It, it's a well-known, I, I think. Yes, and yeah, exactly. You know, this idea of like yeah. it's not just this or that. Yes, and and exactly. <laughs> I I use that all the time. Yes, and so powerful. Right. Well, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm glad it worked out. One more question. Okay. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? Balance. Balance in all aspects of your life. Balance in your professional life. And that's looking at it through that ikigai lens that I mentioned. Balance in terms of even like what you eat, right? 
balance in terms of how you're exercising your body so that you're not just like sitting on the couch only, or you're not just running your body into the ground with over-exercising mm-hmm. it. Balance, balance, balance with your relationship with your friends, with your loved ones, with your children, with yourself. Finding balance is what my definition of health is and what I'm always striving for. Thank you, Chandra. Thank you. I practicing yoga with us from the comfort of her own home? We foster a peaceful, happy, and safe space in our online yoga classes. Community and relationships matter, so there are no more than 10 women per class. And because we wanted to be a good fit, the first month is free for new students. So what are you waiting for? join today. Book at npkhealthintegration.com. Hope to see you soon.